Welcome, everybody. I think we can uh, we can get started. Thanks for, for coming out today to this uh, discussion on the uh, contemporary political situation in Haiti. Uh, I'm Nick Nesbitt in the French and Italian department here at Princeton, and uh, I want, first of all, to thank the uh, French and Italian department, as well as Latin American Studies, the program in Latin American Studies, for having uh, uh, supported and funded this uh, roundtable today. And uh, I want to I want to welcome our guests here, who have kindly come out uh, to Princeton to to discuss uh, some of these issues, which I think are uh, very very complex and very compelling and important to look at at this uh, at this moment. And uh, uh, and I think that we have uh, assembled a group of people who can uh, truly help us to. Uh, to think through these these uh, pressing issues, and let me just say then, first of all, who uh, we we have here today. Um, to my immediate left is Ray LaForest, who is of uh, a, a member of the International Support Haiti Network, and Ray is a longtime uh, activist and labor organizer, and he's also a member of the Pacifica Foundation. National Board. And uh, then to his left is Peter Hallward, who uh, is, is in from London, where he teaches at Kingston University. And uh, Peter is the author of quite a few uh, books that uh, some of us uh, may have read over, over the years. He wrote a, a book about 10 or 11 years ago on uh, post-colonial studies called Absolutely Post-Colonial where he takes on the entirety of that field and uh, critiques it from, from Marxism to deconstruction and, and back. And uh, he wrote a, a, another fundamental uh, uh, study uh, on Badiou, Alain Badiou, the French philosopher, that continues to be um, a reference for the totality of Badiou's thought. He wrote another book on uh, Deleuze, uh, that offered a, a very compelling and uh, very singular reading of that philosopher. And uh, Peter is also the author of this book, Damning the Flood, which has just been reissued in a second edition by Verso. And uh, uh, anyone who's interested can run across the street to Labyrinth and pick up a copy as as I did. And it, uh, it's, it's uh, I think, to my mind, it's... It's the most important book for trying to sort through and think through the complexity of the uh, political events since the fall of Duvalier in 1986 up to uh, the present. Now with this edition, there's, there's an afterword uh, that was penned about six months ago or so. And uh, so this is, I think, essential, I, uh, essential reading that I'd recommend for, for, for anyone interested in these questions. And then to my far left is Kim Ives, who is a journalist who works uh, with Haiti Liberté. And uh, Kim's brought along some copies of the paper. And uh, if you're not familiar with Haiti Liberté, I would recommend it. Uh, uh, it's a weekly that, that uh, is, is uh, essential, I, I think, for um, keeping uh, track and sorting through the events uh, uh, from week to week in Haiti, particularly. Uh, uh, political events in all their complexity. 
So um, we're each going to make some, some brief introductory remarks, uh, maybe uh, 10 or so minutes each, and then we'll just open things up for discussion and uh, questions and, 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 uh, uh, and go from there. So I wanted to make a few initial uh, remarks about the background to uh, uh, these contemporary questions of uh, the political situation today. And uh, there was a, an editorial that uh, was published in The Guardian yesterday, signed by a whole host of people from, I don't know, Chomsky to Zizek and, and all sorts of uh, folks who were concerned with the situation in Haiti. And uh, uh, just to quote a couple of lines from that uh, open letter from yesterday, uh, in, in 2004, the U.S., France, and Canada, uh, and I should say also all of us sitting up here have our, have our name on here, so I, I feel okay reading from it. Um, in 2004, the U.S., France, and Canada, in alliance with members of Haiti's business community and demobilized soldiers of the Haitian army, overthrew the last Haitian government to enjoy genuine popular support. The party that led this government, Famille Lavalas, was elected with around 75% of the vote. This last November, these same powers imposed and funded an illegitimate electoral process in Haiti, one that blocked the participation of Famille Lavalas. Only 23% of Haitian voters participated, scarcely a third of the proportion who voted in the last presidential election. And in recent weeks, the U.S. and its proxies have brazenly interfered in the interpretation of this election's first round of results. The flawed November vote was not only an inconclusive was not only inconclusive and unrepresentative, its outcome was also unlawful. If the second round of these elections goes ahead as planned on 20th of March, it's now sure to result in the, uncon the unconstitutional selection of a president with closer ties to the powers that sponsored and manipulated them than to the people meant to participate in them. And uh, so I just want to uh, mention a couple of uh, quick um, uh, reference points for thinking about the historical complexity of what's led to the situation today. Uh, and, and because the question, uh, I think, comes back for a lot of us who are, who are interested in Haiti, questions like why Haiti? Why, is, why do these things seem to keep happening again and again? Why? From another perspective, why might one one might ask why why in fact should we be concerned about about Haiti and uh, and what's going on there? And just two or three points. Um, the first thing to recall, perhaps, is that the Declaration of the Independence of Haiti in 1804, uh, upon the defeat, the first defeat of the most powerful army in the world, Napoleon's, uh, was a world historical event, and it was also, for the outside world, an anomalous and a terrifying event. And this was true for a couple of different reasons. The first was that I think the Haitian Revolution was uh, a demonstration of the effectiveness of uh, what, what you might want to call the general will or popular sovereignty. I know this is something that Peter's been uh, uh, thinking about quite a bit. Uh, and, and I think that if we look at the Haitian Revolution, 
we see there maybe even more than the situation in revolutionary France, which was, of course, very divided and, and, and uh, still a feudal society in many ways. I think the question in the colony of Saint-Domingue in the 1790s was very simple. Were you for slavery or against it? Were you participating in the plantation system that supported it, or were you trying to overthrow that system? And the question was very simple, and even for uh, people who were in an intermediary position, say somebody like Toussaint Louverture, before the uprising, he had been freed 20 years before. He was a landholder, he was a slaveholder. But at a certain point, that sort of a decision became important, and, and, and uh, everyone made that decision one, was, had to make that decision one way or another. Uh, and particularly, one, I think, maybe the experience of slavery itself, as, as um, I imagine, must have served uh, uh, to solidify that popular movement that ended up defeating the strongest army in the world. That, was, that is to say that despite the complexity and all of the shifts in the long history of that revolution, there, there was, at, at the key moments, a continuity of experience from plantation slavery that I think um, was a unifying factor in, in that expression of, of general will. Uh, and the second point uh, on, on the importance of this event uh, was, of course, that the foundation of Haiti in 1804 was the expression the, uh, the, and the declaration of a universal and immediate total emancipation from slavery of all humans within that territory. And this was a terrifying event for the outside world because the outside world was uh, uh, built on the, the economy of slavery. In the United States, the, the American Revolution, of course, was uh, uh, won and, and, and American independence consolidated the slave holding system and, and strengthened it and uh, slavery, the importation of slaves tripled up to 1807 after independence. Uh, France, Spain, England, the whole Atlantic world was built on the slave economy and Haiti was a very small, uh, isolated place standing against that, uh, that power. And so in that sense, when we think about why this is of interest to us here today. I think that from the very start and the foundation of the United States, our political economy is founded upon the disavowal and the repression of that, uh, uh, um, the event of Haitian abolition. That is, that United, the United States was found, founded upon the crime and the regime of violence of plantation slavery, and just across the water there was this small independent country where that was negated. And so I think that Haiti has taken an overdetermined place in U.S. history, particularly, of course, up till 1865, but I think even, even beyond then. Uh, and thirdly, Haiti, after its independence, put into place the only successful land reform in Latin America, at least as far as I'm aware, up until, say, the, the, the Ladu Law in Mexico in 1856, which in itself was largely unsuccessful. And up until the 20th century, Haitian land reform 
was an isolated situation in Latin America. Fourthly, the rural population of Haiti, the excluded after independence, even before independence, articulated a completely different social structure that from the outside has always appeared as sort of under development or dysfunctionality, but which in, in fact has uh, a number of people have analyzed the, uh, the, the very original and, and importantly postmodern, that is after the modern experience of plantation slavery, uh, rather than say um, in the Amazon jungle, something like that, uh, uh, social structures of, um, of um, stateless egalitarianism in, in, in a very active sense, the, the denial of the alienation of sovereignty and autonomy to any sort of um, uh, separate body. And then, just to, just to conclude here, um, in response to that situation after 1804, there were a number of key events, just two or three of them that I'll, that I'll mention, to keep in mind leading up into the second half of the 20th century. In this situation of a global world system based on uh, slave labor in the first half and beyond of the 19th century, as I say, Haiti was a terrifying anomaly to the outside world. And there were a number of different reactions, which I suppose should have been that, that weren't abolition, as, as, as one might have hoped, but uh, uh, belittling uh, the, the revolution, racism, caricature, extortion, denial, disavowal, repression, invasion, again and again. And just three things, three events to, to recall. The first uh, might be the, the American embargo in 1806, immediately after trade embargo, immediately after Haitian independence. The second that uh, uh, you may be familiar with as well was uh, the extortion by France in 1825 of diplomatic recognition uh, at the cost of 125 million francs at the time, in the, t in the money of the time. Uh, uh, that was twice, roughly twice the GDP of the country at that point, and the money then that they didn't have was kindly loaned by France and then repaid to France over the rest of the century, um, basically bankrupting the country uh, for, for through the 19th century. And then the third one to recall here is, is probably the, the first U.S. invasion on July 28, 1915, which lasted all the way until 1934, until August of 1934. And uh, a couple of the, the, the outcomes of that occupation were that approximately 40% of the Haitian GDP was redirected to uh, paying off loans uh, to French and American banks. Uh, there was the systematic dismantling of the Haitian constitution. There was forced labor and conscription, which, which uh, uh, built quite a few uh, uh, pieces of elements of infrastructure in the country under under forced uh, labor. Um, the establishment of the National Guards, which uh, was the force that ended up uh, uh, dominating and uh, terrorizing the, the country itself through in different forms through the 20th century. 
um, and uh, the dismantling of a, of a liberal education system and its replacement with uh, trade schools. Um, and then finally, uh, we could recall the, the, the two uh, coups, the overthrow of uh, the democratically elected president, first democratically elected president of, of Haiti, uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, twice. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll hear more about that, I think, from our guests. And so I'll just leave it at that and uh, pass uh, the baton, so to, speak. The baton to uh, my colleague, Ray LaForest. Okay, thank you, Nick. Excellent. Well, um, the challenge you face tonight is, as usual in such a situation, to use a relatively small amount of time to cover a long history. In this case, Columbus landed in Haiti in 1492. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going back that far. And um, coalesce it, uh, draw the essential elements of that history, the dynamic uh, 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 relations and, and rapport force, and so that I'm assuming you're here because you're interested at the minimum about Haiti. So our goal, I, I would be satisfied if at the end of this evening that not only you'd be more interested about Haitian history, as you just heard, it was remarkable in many ways, but you would be interested in the, in the life, the, the, the reality of the Haitian people, understand its, its importance and its relation uh, to the reality of this United States government and uh, European powers particularly. So, um, as, again, as you just heard, uh, Haiti has, been, has had a remarkable history in many ways, dramatic, bigger than life, uh, pretty tragic in many ways. Uh, the only slavery war that ever succeeded, uh, I don't know if Nick did say that, uh, contributed greatly to helping Bolivar uh, succeed uh, and going back and, and creating uh, at least initially what is known as South America um, and literally giving Bolivar the only two ships that they had left. Uh, but we have to discuss some of the dynamics also because the Haiti that we're looking at today is a result of a history of interaction, historical, geopolitical, and regional relation with powers that have influenced its, its reality greatly. And again, Nick mentioned uh, many of them, the occupation of Haiti, certainly by the United States in 1915, the readjustment of the whole economy and the structure of government, of the creation for the first time of a central Haitian institution, La, La Garde d'Haïti, uh, 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 if, if you want an army that was trained abroad and who, that decided the priorities of that society. Uh, things we see today, for example, in, in Haiti, Haitians very often refer to Port-au-Prince, the capital, sarcastically as the Republic of Port-au-Prince. Now some of those phenomena happened earlier, some of them got reinforced during the American occupation because they controlled the country from Port-au-Prince. So many ports on the north side were closed because they didn't need them. Many of the roads and railroads were built specifically to facilitate control of the country militarily and exportation and exportation of resources. Uh, other thing that has tremendous impact is that when the United States went to Haiti, the Haitians were in the middle of a, of a, a peasant revolt for land by the Kakos. And uh, this movement resisted uh, the occupation by the United States by force and uh, paid a serious price for the defeat, um, and uh, both in numbers and, um, and, and, and loss of control of, of the society, and uh, a temporary setback in the goal of social justice. 
So I'm, I've been asked and I'm glad to talk about the period that, uh, again, we could talk about the, the period that followed. What did the U.S. imposition of an economic system? As you just said, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt bragged that he wrote the Haitian Constitution sitting on the port of Haiti on the ship. And, uh, and uh, maybe it's true, maybe it's not true, but it clearly was changed in a way. For example, for the first time, it was possible for a foreigner to owe land. And, and, and resources in, in Haiti. Um, so as this country defined itself, went from being a country looking to try to define uh, democracy in its own term for the benefits mostly, as we know here, of a, at initially a small group of people, landowners and so on. Uh, and um, so as that, as that history evolved, there was clearly a, a, a conflict, a dynamic conflict between that notion, that ideal of democracy, and the reality of, uh, of, of slavery, certainly, of alienation of native people, of uh, acquisition of territory from Mexico, and then later we saw the Spanish-American War where the United States accaparated uh, Puerto Rico, uh, Cuba, uh, went to the Philippines, Hawaii, and certainly Latin America at some point there was a guy named Walker who was president of Nicaragua. Uh, so you cannot understand the history of Haiti without understanding that relationship of superordinated and subordinate relationship, uh, including, of course, as in all cases, the role of a local uh, uh, oligarchy in Haiti playing a role, in this case, of, uh, unlike the United States and France, where uh, those democracies were built by their own bourgeoisie in the interest of their, their, themselves, and therefore, uh, and relatively enlightened bourgeoisie, if you want, that developed things, because that was the most efficient way to get things done. Um, when you have a, that kind of relationship of a superpower next to a small power, then the role of that upper class, although very often uh, uh, quite voluntarily so, uh, is to be an intermediate, a courtier, as we say in French, of that power's interest uh, within that country. So uh, what we saw that might be relevant is that the, in Haitian history, one of the basic dichotomy of, in spite of all the confusion, all the fightings and all the incidents, it's a struggle for power. And essentially, from the time of independence, the people who were in a position of power were the lighter-skinned Haitian, called mulattoes, um, who had more education, acquired wealth, either, actually according to French law, if you were born what they call an affranchi, which is of mixed parentage, you were automatically you, don't, you, you were never a slave, and you had to, to owe property, including slaves yourself. Uh, so this class found itself in a position of, of, uh, of superiority, if you want. Uh, but on the other side, they were so-called uh, more conservative in terms of politics, because their possession, their wealth was based on land possession, and as usual, uh, a, 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 a system, economic system based on land is much more static vis-à-vis -vis something that is based on expert and... and, and, and uh, uh, industry or the primitive industry. So, and the so-called blacks in that society that rose to the top where many of them were former generals of the Desalines, the, of the independence. And uh, so, if you want, in a very simplistic way, a lot of Haitian history was a struggle of those two classes, or those two segments of the upper class, Haitian upper class, fighting and using different tools and imageries and propaganda suddenly to put themselves in a position of power. Uh, the United States, so numerically, the blacks, quote unquote, in Haiti are uh, much larger groups. So every time there was a direct confrontation between the mulattoes and the blacks, the mulattoes lost. The U.S. presence in Haiti changed that. Uh, these guys spoke French, they were 
lighter looking and so on, and they were more directly uh, amenable and, and acceptable to U.S. forces. So, for, so again, so that that group of the upper class got a resurgency of their power and were again in a position to play a tremendous role. Uh, so again, and then the struggle started immediately again along those lines, but again, actually a class struggle, and the Haitian masses, as much as they could, would try to push things in their own interest. But it's clear that interest was secondary. So different government that followed after tended to be more mulatto-led. And uh, so Duvalier, Papa Duvalier, everybody unfortunately knows Haiti for that, uh, too much so, uh, is uh, uh, as a medical doctor who studied and, uh, in, in Haiti, school is free, uh, at least in those days when it was really widespread, universities were, they still are, and you study medicine for free and you would have to work for the government for two years and be assigned to different parts of the countryside. So he got to know the, 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 the mentality of voodoo and so on, since that influenced greatly Haitian masses, and he used it to keep himself in power. However, that power was only able to last with father and son for some 30 years, because the, the, the dynamic of control of the Duvalier dynasty fitted, which is a broader dynamic of control of U.S. empire in Haiti. And um, so, although, so this, this individual came with a rhetoric of uh, uh, populism. Uh, am I doing that one? Five minutes. Okay. Um, populism and based on an old, uh, the Milano used to say power to the most capable ones because that, they define that as being most educated in a formal sense. And the blacks, including Papa Doc, define power as to those who are to the majority. And obviously, that was him. And to be an effective president or leader of Haiti, you have to be a black man in Haitian terms. Um, but clearly, that was visited immediately. As soon as he faced opposition, uh, a neo-fascist system was put in place, ruthless. Uh, there's probably more written about this period of history in Haiti as of independence than any other period, unfortunately. Uh, pretty uh, savage, and I'm to some extent a product of that, although I was very young then. And uh, tremendous suffering for the Haitian people, including a complete uh, uh, destruction of structures that function to some extent to provide a modicum of benefits, a modicum of democratic institution and functioning of representation. And that the U.S. accepted. Uh, because in 1959, 45 miles from Haiti, Cuba appeared. And Cuba was a result of a similar dynamic, but a struggle that had moved further ahead. And has started earlier in 1954, for example, when our government in Guatemala um, decided to nationalize the oil of Guatemala and was overthrown in the process. Cubans get tired of having being the biggest producer of sugar and not see that sugar at home, the biggest producer of cigars and not smoke them. And Cassie knows that enslaved the population and turned the women to prostitutes. And they rose up and put an end to it. And this experiment is still going on today, uh, since July 26, 1959. Um, so this brought into focus, so as we can see in Cuba, as in many other countries like Latin America, these changes, these radical changes, were the result of extremely exploitative uh, and sustainable institutions, supported mostly by the United States. Uh, the, the notion of banana republic is a very true one. What it means is that each country was a banana republic producing a monoculture dedicated solely to exportation. Which means that you had absolutely no control. 
because the person is the, the people to whom you sold decided the price of your resources, but also you could starve your app because if you put the sugar, you could you could you know what you could do with it if somebody decided not to buy it. So, so again, Latin America because of its rich history uh, went back to its sources and in spite of things maybe one day will find out the world of the CIA and other uh, uh, reactionary governments in those countries, uh, an amazing story of resistance and struggle, and uh, which we operate, if you want, with the, the Cuban Revolution, and uh, continue in Central America, uh, El Salvador, Nicaragua, and now it's happening in Latin America. This is my bias, clearly, and I'm, I'm sharing it with you. Um, and it's my bias because, for me, this is the reality. The, 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 the need for those countries is for, for a system that addresses the needs, the necessity, the goal, and aspiration of the majority of the people. And that is what the struggles are about in spite of all the trappings of uh, slogans and so on. So this dictatorship was imposed on Haiti. However, at some point, to every action is a reaction. The U.S. observed that one of the costs of that dictatorship was that the Haitian people was organizing. First, on the left, in 1969, the left was completely wiped out in, in, in a bloody repression that lasted a year or so. And then uh, through theology of liberation, the Asian people organized for change. Uh, Doc was finally removed, not because Reagan realized suddenly that democracy was important, but because it was no longer effective. Because the Asian people was ready to rise up and destroy that institution that we just called the Asian army and put an end to it. And it was time, therefore, to remove that liability that was the government of Baby Dog, uh, bring about a new change, and that change included uh, the U.S. and Asian individual institutions choosing the replacement to Baby Dog, which was the Baby Dog's chief of staff. So you know what kind of change we're talking about. Setting up a new constitution where now you would have election and democracy would, the better democracy would ring again, and Haitian people could just happily, you know, line up and go work for Disney for 20 cents an hour. So. I'm kind of rushed, unfortunately, so I'm kind of, uh, hopefully we can talk about some of those dynamics a little bit more. But basically, what preceded Aristide was an accommodation to see if the system could be saved. But you can see the first attempt at introduction of structural adjustment measures in Haiti under baby dog. Rice is dumped on the market from Florida at the price with which the Haitian person cannot compete. Clothes, which Haitian call pepe, you know, t-shirts, sneakers that last forever, are given as donations and in the process help destroy the Haitian production, I mean, uh, what they call cordonnier, people who make shoes, clothing, all that is completely wiped out. So what is slowly happening, which is described in many ways, um, um, IT, uh, IT film has a brilliant film called Haiti, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Bitter Cane, that I recommend that you see, it's a little bit dated, but the dynamics are amazingly similar and it will give you a tremendous understanding as to what's going on in Haiti now. Um, and uh, so the Haitian people was brought back in, uh, in, uh, and at the same time they were grabbing for democracy to economic starvation where they would welcome where they would welcome uh, the Disney's and other organizations offering cheap jobs because the alternative was starvation thank you very much I hope we can end on a more constructive note than that later thank you Peter okay Thank you. So I'm going to pick up the chronological threads. Uh, uh, Ray left us a bit with, the, with the, the, the development of a popular organization in the late 1980s, and I'm going to uh, uh, carry us to about 2004, the coup uh, that overthrew Aristide's second government, and then Kim will take over from there. Uh, if pause for a second on our title, so containing democracy. 
democracy, the rule of the people, under what circumstances do you have to contain that? Well, uh, you know, they're not hard, I think, to predict some of them. A situation in which there's a very uh, rigid and brittle social structure that separates a, a wealthy but small paranoid elite on the one hand from a large mass of uh, disempowered poor people on the other. Where, so a situation like that, a situation in which merely military means of control or merely dictatorial means of control no longer very effective for different reasons, either because it's bad PR or because it's become too costly in political terms. And where there's a tradition of popular struggle, the revolution that Nick talked about, uh, which is still very present, of course, in Haitian consciousness. Uh, these are some of the structural conditions, and they become acute when there's a popular movement starts to take shape, as it does in the 1980s. Uh, and in particularly in three, uh, three kinds of ways that are, I think are basic to any democratic um, uh, mobilization. It uh, develops a capacity to associate or to assemble popular power first. Second, it develops resources for exchanging information, for deliberating, for discussing, for arriving at political decisions. And then third, and most important, it, it develops means for imposing those decisions in the face of the resistance that they might encounter. And those three things come together in Haiti in the late 80s, early 90s, and it creates, it sets the agenda for what's happened ever since, I think. So I'll just run through that quickly. Uh, the development of new forms of association or assembly, and this right to form assemblies or to associate, for example, uh, uh, industrial combinations or trade unions is a very important part, uh, part of any democratic history, of course. And in Haiti, it takes place in, in large part, as Ray said, through liberation theology and the development of the so-called tiliglis, the little churches that uh, spring up in all, lots of parts of Latin America, but in Haiti, in particular, uh, all through the 1980s, which become places where people talk about the Bible and so on, but also about politics and strategy, and they're grounded uh, you know, in every parish uh, in Haiti, and they have uh, an important political impact. For one thing... Um, it, it, uh, what, what emerges through liberation theology in Haiti, as elsewhere, is a very clear message of social justice that is grounded in terms that pretty much everyone can understand, doesn't require complicated education, uh, and that is backed up by serious re resources. So you have a, an institution here, the Catholic Church, that has a place to meet people, a little bit of money, a, a platform, a pulpit, a place to speak from, that is everywhere in the country, and in fact is everywhere in the hemisphere, and that means that someone like Aristide can get up in the, in the cathedral in Port-au-Prince in 1985-86 and make a speech that's heard by 3,000 people, that is then recorded on cassettes, exchanged all over the country, and, uh, and changes the political discourse um, um, in quite dramatic ways. So Aristide, and there are many others, uh, Father Jean-Marie Vincent, and, and, and other uh, members of this uh, movement that become not the leaders exactly, but the spokespeople of this, of this um, political mobilization. That's, a, so that's an important thing, I think. And there are other aspects, other new forms of organization that take place. And Family Lavalas, the political party that Nick mentioned at the beginning, is very much the descendant of this. It's organizing structures based, in a sense, on the experience of the petit l'église. It has so-called family, little, little cells or family kind of, it's not really a family structure, but a small party uh, cells that are all through... Um, Haiti, and that worked more or less well, but it has a kind of grassroots um, organization to it. Uh, likewise, also the development of um, new trade unions, new forms of industrial or working class solidarity, both in the countryside uh, as sharecropping and other forms of rural exploitation become more intense, but perhaps particularly in the cities as neoliberalism uh, takes 
you know, really starts to bite in Haiti in, um, over the course of the late 70s and early 80s, driving people off the land into slums and to poor neighborhoods, particularly in Port-au-Prince. And there you have the, the forced association of large numbers of people, particularly in a neighborhood like City Soleil, for example, which, if you know Port-au-Prince, is strung out along right next to the industrial belt where the factories are. And this concentrated you know, hundreds of thousands of people in a very densely populated, very uh, poor place right next to the factories where some of them worked. Uh, and became a very political place, you know, very highly organized, very militant, um, and it, it's not an accident that it became a political battleground um, later. So that's the first thing, development of new forms of association, new forms of assembly that became increasingly militant. Second, the development quickly of, of resources of deliberation and information um, uh, here, particularly so after Duvalier, where there was a total political shutdown, a silence of political culture, all kinds of new forms of media, uh, in a way, Kim's life and career overlaps with the development of these things. He played an important role from the beginning um, in new newspapers. Haiti Progrès, the Haiti Liberté, is a direct descendant of this uh, development. Films, uh, um, particularly perhaps radio stations that develop at this time and that, and that help create what is still, I think, a very highly literate political culture in Haiti. People know a great deal about politics everywhere and people talk about politics is a kind of, in, in a way that is really quite remarkable if you're not uh, used to it. Uh, the church also is an important place of political discussion. So you have this kind of a, a real a kind of ferment of political deliberation going on, which means that it's quite easy when there's a political opportunity to formulate a common program for the popular movement, which is what happens when Lavalas becomes a bit more organized. Lavalas meaning the flood or the torrent, uh, the, broadly the, the name that the popular movement gives itself in the late 80s. And when this movement, this is my third point, develops the capacity to overcome the resistance that the formation of a popular agenda uh, confronts, it becomes a genuine threat um, to, to, the, to the ruling elite. And it does this in two ways. It, it, first of all, it confronts the military obstacles, and second of all, it confronts the political obstacles. The military ones are the most obvious. The Duvalier dictatorship was backed up, was based on the army plus the Makuts. The army had to be purged and reworked a little bit. But once Duvalier had done that, and then supplemented it with his paramilitary force, the, the Makuts, you had a, a very effective structure of repression all through Haiti, uh, particularly at a rural level, that was so effective that when the CIA came to look at Haiti as a place where they might be worried about something like a, you know, um, a communist movement or something like that in the mid-70s, they said, there's no danger of that here. This, uh, it's, it's he said, so, people are so downtrodden as to be politically inert. Um, and as a result, uh, you know, no, nothing to worry about. Uh, the democratic movement then, the Lavalas mobilization, uh, deals with this problem uh, by, first of all, uprooting the Makuts, the so-called Deshupkaj of the Makuts in the mid-80s, 1986, which is, a, I think, a defining moment in that these, these local, locally-based uh, thugs who had, who had you know, maintained the peace of the cemetery as people say, uh, in Haiti for a very long time, were systematically deprived of their power. Uh, in some cases lynched, in other cases forced into internal exile, in other cases simply pacified one way or another. And that meant that the regime no longer had an, a, a machine for maintaining local control. These are people who, with the army, had killed tens of thousands of people over the preceding decades. So that's the first, that's the first serious setback for the regime. That The army, though, is still in place. The army that the Americans had reworked turned into its extension of its basically of its power structure. And the army then is able, once Aristide is elected in 1990, the army is still in place to get rid of his administration in 1991 in the usual way. It's 
old-fashioned military coup d'etat, which happens after a false start in September 1991. Thousands of people are killed. The movement is dealt a very serious blow. Uh, possibly as many as 300,000 people go into internal exile. Many go into uh, external exile as well. And it takes a very long time for the movement to recover. But second great achievement, when Arce comes back in very complicated circumstances in the company of American troops, he is at least able to disband the army, which means no Makuts and no army. Uh, and hence no extra political mechanism for maintaining the status quo. So if they could resolve, if the popular movement was able then to deal with the political problem, you had a real opportunity in Haiti. And the political problem was lack of unity and discipline. Haiti, uh, Haitian politics traditionally, uh, ever since the end of the Duvalier dictatorship, is dominated by lots of little partylets, little kind of micro-parties, typically a bunch of friends of one big guy, you know, the, the, the one, you know, one powerful individual, uh, there's no real structure to them. They don't particularly have an agenda. Uh, and it's, uh, it's very difficult when you have 20 or 30 of these organizations uh, to, to do anything that actually allows for something like consolidated political action. And Family Lavalas is a very flawed organization. We could spend a lot of time going through its problems and its um, defects. But it was a fundamental political development, I think, in the late 1990s that created for the first time in Haitian history a mass-based political party that was able to win elections at every level of government with a relatively well-thought-through political program, a sort of 200-page uh, booklet that they put together after a couple of years of um, discussion in the late 90s called Investing in People. And sure enough, in 2000, this organization won a landslide victory, 75% of the vote, as Nick mentioned, which meant that they had you know, 26 out of 27 seats in the Senate, uh, 72 out of 83 seats in the Parliament. They had most of the municipal governments as well. And at that point, you had an unprecedented moment, I think, in Haitian history, which is to say a popular movement with a very solid revolutionary or quasi-revolutionary tradition behind it, with a clear leadership, with a, a relatively solid grassroots organization structure to it, and no extra political mechanism, no army available to to directly uh, you know, overrule over it. And it's at that point that this campaign to contain democracy becomes a, a, you know, a major preoccupation for American foreign policy and for local elite policy. And what happens systematically, and I'm going to stop now, but is that the three things that I mentioned, association, deliberation, and the capacity to say realize or impose itself, are, are, are undone, if you like. So all kinds of pressure sets up to disassemble people, to break up that party, for example, to find individuals or opportunists in the party and buy them off or turn them against each other. It worked spectacularly well in November, the last election in November a couple of months ago. Uh, to undermine, for example, liberation theology in ways that were typical across the hemisphere, but very spectacular in Haiti, where, where hundreds, literally, of right-wing evangelical churches were, were brought into existence over the course of about 20 years, uh, systematically undercutting the power of this single coherent organization, the Catholic Church, as it had been appropriated to some extent at least by liberation theology. Uh, the uh, second point, the, the reversal of this capacity to deliberate, the, a, a big campaign that was quite successful to reappropriate the space of the public media, public information. So the, broadly the right-wing business sector gets control of the majority of the radio stations, for example, uh, and a very effective campaign of propaganda and of misrepresentation and confusion done uh, in all kinds of ways. It's quite interesting to try and track it. One of the most important vehicles for this was NGOs and human rights groups, which in, over the course of the first years of the, you know, from 2000 to 2000, 
three in particular, played a very effective role of misrepresenting the situation, casting particularly Aristide as a kind of human rights catastrophe, at setting up one of the most perverse equations that you can imagine, Aristide equals Duvalier. In fact, some even went so far as to say Aristide equals Paul Pot. And this is absolutely you know, absurd misrepresentation. Uh, there, was a, there was political violence under Aristide, it's true. If you were to chart it on a graph, unless you had a very, very large uh, you know, metric on the left-hand side, you wouldn't be able to see it. I mean, thousands of people killed before him. Under Aristide, it drops down. We're talking controversial cases of between 10, maybe 30 individuals killed in very complicated circumstances. Uh, as soon as Aristide is gone in both cases, again, thousands of people killed. Um, so to see a kind of continuum, as Human Rights Watch put it, of political violence under Aristide going back in, into previous decades is, is, is absurd. And finally, this capacity then to, to overcome resistance is undercut in different ways. There's the, the, the military, the paramilitaries are reactivated and there's a low-level paramilitary Contra-style uh, campaign that undermines Aristide's government uh, all through uh, the, you know, from 2001 to 2004. Uh, and the political agenda too, again, this, this, uh, an, an, a, a project to disrupt the unity of this party, and that has in a sense been the story ever since. The, the difficulty now of, of restoring some degree of unity, capacity for action, and so on, and in a sense that remains, I think, the agenda uh, as we speak. All right, moving right along, there's always an advantage to going last, because we can <laughs> plug on fill in the holes. Um, there's essentially been this revolutionary process happening in Haiti as uh, uh, Ray and Peter have outlined since 1986 with Duvalier's overthrow, uh, which has been beaten back on two occasions by coup d'etats, where they brought back the Duvalierists. Uh, even if they didn't call them that, in one form or another, the old order, the ancien regime, and tried to install it. But in both cases, it couldn't stick. There was too much resistance, too much uh, uh, rebellion among the people. And right now, we're experiencing a case where uh, they've fine-tuned it, so it is a, an electoral coup d'etat essentially taking place. Um, as you may have heard, there's uh, a second round of elections which are due to take place in about three weeks on March 20th, uh, which essentially pit new, two neo-devalierist candidates against each other. Merland Maniga, a sort of um, folksy grandmother figure, and uh, a fellow called uh, Michel Martelly, also known as Sweet Mickey, a... Um, a very sort of uh, body uh, combat singer who uh, has um, uh, a lot of ties to the death squads, uh, to the coups that happened uh, in 1991 to uh, even though they, they did for many of those years have military uh, dictatorships or uh, civilian-backed uh, uh, occupation-enforced uh, dictatorships, uh, we see the devaluers posed to retake power. And I, I think it's uh, a real 
uh, I could say, uh, confrontation of these two historical threads which uh, Nick Ray and Peter have laid out, where you have uh, Duvalier coming back symbolically uh, in January to uh, resume his place as sort of the symbol of this of this uh, union of these two classes of the uh, landed oligarchy, the grandons, the big landowners, and the bourgeoisie. He, he was really the uh, first merging of these two into uh, one political force, which was called during his reign the Jean Claudistes. And so the Jean Claudistes, which are uh, really the essence of um, a lot of these. Families, which, um, if you follow Haitian events, have come to be known, the Meuse, the Bouloses, the Apeds, uh, all these families uh, were really his base of power. Uh, so he has come back, and his, his offspring, if we can call him that, uh, the uh, uh, singer Sweet Mickey, and uh, to some extent, uh, Mirland Maniga, who is really uh, some sort of... Um, stand-in for her husband, who was a, a sort of slightly reformed devaluerist, um, are both positioned to take power. And this has been through the intervention of the U.S. via the, its proxy, the Organization of American States, what the Cubans call the Ministry of Colonial Affairs of Washington, uh, which has essentially came in and, and read uh, uh, René Preval, President, the Riot Act, and said, listen, <laughs> even though your electoral council, which constitutionally has the final word, is the final arbiter in all electoral matters, even though they said that uh, Jules Celestin, the candidate of the official party, came in second, uh, we're going to have none of that. We, we want to see Michel Martelly in there. The way they arrived at this has been uh, completely uh, dismantled by um, uh, in particular the Center for uh, uh, Economic and Policy Research in Washington have done um, fine work in, in basically showing how their methodology was completely uh, silly and uh, that it was really arbitrary uh, the way they, they installed uh, uh, Sweet Mickey into the second place position to, to have the runoff that they're having. Uh, on the other hand, we have now um, poised to return President Aristide, uh, who is still in South Africa, but essentially has been uh, warned uh, by the uh, United States that they don't want to see him back, at least not before Jan uh, uh, March 20th, which is in a sense, uh, means you're not coming back at all, because after March 20th, the uh, Makuts, the, the Duvalierists, will be back in power, um, resurgent, uh, rearmed, re, uh, resilient, and now we will see uh, a state where, if he came back, he would be met at the airport by the police, not as in the case of Jean-Claude Duvalier, to be escorted to a... Uh, uh, a luxury hotel, but rather to be taken to jail. So really we have a three-week period now in which um, Aristide could return. And if he were, as uh, um, a, a recent 
piece by uh, Amy Willens, who wrote a, a book about the uh, 86 to 90 period called The Rainy Season, also worthwhile reading. Uh, she said it would be a hurricane of, of popular uh, um, mobilization. We would see uh, tens of thousands, uh, maybe hundreds of thousands of people mass into uh, Port-au-Prince. And this is precisely why the State Department and now France and Canada have uh, followed suit, have, have warned that Aristide not return. Um, and so we, we, we really, as we speak here, are living in this moment of confrontation. What will happen? Will he get back? Now, uh, uh, it is possible. The security um, challenges of that return would be formidable. Uh, it's for sure uh, there would be all sorts of people out to gun him down to do as they did to Aquino, get him at the airport on the tarmac or on his way to uh, wherever he's going. But at the same time, we have uh, 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 an international moment where we have uh, these rolling rebellions from, from the Midwest to Mideast. We see uh, people rising up. The, the, the empire really has its hands full right now. And um, uh, it may be a moment where um, if Aristide could get back, if uh, we have a new alignment in Latin America, we have the Alba nations who would be uh, more than happy if I think uh, it was put to them by uh, Aristide to to provide some security to come in. Okay, this would this would create huge alarm in Washington and create uh, you know a firestorm in the press and Chavez and Castro and Morales and uh, Correa are taking over and all kinds of things, but. You could get him back. So in many ways, Haiti, uh, going back to what, what Nick was pointing out at the very beginning, has always been this, this touchstone. It has been where the rebellion starts. In 1804, it was you know, Haiti that really uh, was the touchstone for those revolutions that swept the continent. It was, again, the first nation to foil the U.S. election engineering that uh, was happening throughout Latin America where they would just have an election, whoever paid the most won, and Aristide was the first one to do that. Afterwards came Chavez and Morales and the others, but it, it was first Haiti, and now once again I think we're seeing a case where despite all the, the bluster and the power that the U.S. is trying to project into Haiti, we have a good chance that this uh, 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 counter-revolution, uh, electoral counter-revolution, I could call it, that they uh, uh, have uh, built uh, and is about to try to deploy that could be foiled by uh, a mobilization uh, that could rival what, we, what we're seeing uh, in other parts of the world. So, I'll stop. Okay. Get the prize for most concision. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Any, any, anything else, or should we open it up? Uh, why, don't we, why don't we just open up the floor for discussion and questions, comments? I think we have a microphone somewhere here. We, we may not need it. Do we need Maybe it? Maybe we don't need it. Yeah. 
Maybe we're okay. Yeah, yeah sure. sure. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, there it is. Can I, can I just crack off? Go ahead. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Let's do that. Um, so I want to ask a question about the ties that bind between 1804 or 
at these different moments have been um, uh, followed through in very complex uh, ways uh, that 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 often remain have remained faithful precisely to those principles rather than being some manifestation of irrationality. Um, so let me just stop there and, and I wonder what else. Should we take yeah. a couple of questions? Yeah, why don't we do that? Or Sorry. comments and then I, I'd have to answer Let's have too. a couple of questions. Um, I don't want to engage in a debate with you, gentlemen, but I just want to restore a little balance here. I don't disagree with a lot of what has been said about it, or let me identify myself. My name is Dudley Saprell. I was the U.S. Consul General and Chargé d'Affaires in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, uh, during the time that Jean, uh, Jean Bertrand Aristide came to power uh, through a democratic election. I don't uh, disagree that the violence, the corruption, history of Haiti has got us to the point here in the United States didn't play a role in that because we had southern, a southern part of the United States that would very much wanted to isolate Haiti and keep it away for reasons that, that are obvious. But let's, let's come forward to 1990 and 1991. John uh, Bertrand, Artist had no bigger friend and no bigger supporter than the United States of America. We uh, and other countries made sure that the elections went off properly. Okay? We then, uh, in the interim, when Madame Trujillo was the provisional president, there was a coup against her by Army was petrified to no action. Okay. We got them, the American Embassy, exercised, and these people were ultimately arrested. And Reverend uh, Aristide was then, he was inaugurated King President. And there has been, as quite rightly said, a long time uh, suppression of the rest of the population by the mulatto. Said he leaves. No question about that. Those people at that time were labeled unofficially by many in the American Embassy, which reflected the general attitude as the MREs. I hope you've heard that term, but it stands for the morally repugnant elites. That was our that was the attitude that, that originated in the American Embassy, which is the concept. We did everything we could to support President R. Steve. There were millions and millions of dollars pledged to help Haiti, but nobody would release the money unless it was an economic plan. It never was forthcoming. The answer that we got at our ambassador at the time, who was very core, Steve, as where we are, I knew these people. I knew the players. I knew the president. We supported him, but his his own re reluctance to come up with a plan and to formulate and to lead and get the country where it should be going 
led in many respects to his failure. And as also the general explained, there was violence, not to the degree, but there was violence. There were corpses burned in the street. Okay, that's how I, when I arrived at Fort Knox, what I saw. There was a, uh, the answer we got back was, no, we want to check. We said, we write a plan for it. No, we wanted the people who said they want to check. An official was sent off to Libya to get an, of all places, to get an economic plan. Well, with the violence, the ineptitude, and the, the elites attended his inauguration. They promised to pay taxes, and they were supporting our Steve. After six months, uh, toward the end of six months, with the, the failings of the administration, repression and so forth, the elites and military conspired to stage a coup. <clears throat> no question about that. We heard over the radio, and everybody used walkie-talkies, we monitored the local army, they monitor our, our because communication is very primitive. The message was, we heard, what are they going to do with our Steve when they got captured him uh, after the coup? We heard, shoot him. We went and saved his life. Stop that. Venezuelans came in. We were closer to the Venezuelans. Uh, Carlos Perez Andres. Andres Carlos Perez. <coughs> and he was flown out to Venezuela. So, I just want to get that out there, that there is another interpretation and perspective. I was very much part of it. And to say the United States opposed RSD or tried to block his accession to power in the wall. Well, I appreciate uh, Mr. Sorrell's uh, recounting of that year. But I'm curious, I'm just uh, somebody who reads the newspaper and has some Haitian friends when I'm out of town. So here we are in 2011, 2010. Uh, why, why now would the U.S. Uh, work to afford more popular bill? Uh, I guess the first round of elections demonstrated that, as the speaker said. Uh, and I guess uh, here's, a, here's a little mental exercise. If Hillary Clinton were here, if we were having a private conversation with Hillary, uh, what would she give as the reasons for the U.S. taking the, the position that it has, allegedly? I mean, yeah, we've got, <clears throat> we, we can debate all day about Chavez and Morales, and we we'll do that here. But if, what, would, what would Hillary say are the reasons for the U.S. Uh, I was curious, I wanted to raise the question of uh, state intervention a little bit, <clears throat> try to, try to, uh, I'd like, I'd like to hear a little bit of an analysis of state intervention, not just on the side of the United States, but it was intriguing, because I've been thinking about this a lot myself, what, what would be the case if Latin American countries formed an alliance with Haiti in this moment? in order for Aristide to come in. And so, on one level, obviously that alliance would be something very much opposed to 
what it would be like to have state intervention from the United States. At the same time, figures like Chavez, figures like Castro, they are part of state power, a state. And I wonder, is it at the level where the Haitian people couldn't organize themselves to, to uh, enable Aristide to come in? I mean, there's just tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people would, would rally as a result and coming back. I wonder, why would it take state intervention from other Latin American countries um, to get Aristide back in the first place? Why, why wouldn't that be something that could be formed now? Um, and, and just sort of also as like a political question generally, what, how do you talk about state intervention from, uh, not from the United States, from Europe, but these sort of less traditional radical states such as Morales, Chavez, and Cashman? I think our cup is very okay. full. Oh, we're so, full. We're so we're so one more? Well, you did it, Chair. Yeah, you have a lot there, so I just want to throw one more into the mix. And I'm wondering if you can talk about, I feel like it's a little bit of a gorilla in the room here, if I can tell you if plays into the political complexities of the city. Sure. Hasn't found gorilla in the corner. Mm-hmm. It'll connect with the question about why now. I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay. How do we want to divide this up? Uh, why don't you start? Okay, uh, I'll, I'll quickly, because both Kim and Ray can answer your, your points a bit more directly about Nani, but, but just briefly, uh, I'd be curious, so I, I assume you think that the, the U.S. did not support the coup in September 91, but there is a lot of counter-evidence to that. Um, did you, I don't know if you spoke, for example, to the CIA station chief then, John Camburian, or is that, was that his name, John Camburian, or, mm-hmm. uh, who's pretty much on record as saying you know, that the, the U.S. supported it. The, the key players were all on the CIA payroll. This was you know, demonstrated as something that I think is, is basically very solid. So there's a lot of... Anyway, I came in... Um, I, I think then to look at what, what actually happened once he was out of power, to, to look at those three years of exile as something that... Uh, wasn't a deliberate attempt to um, destroy that movement, I think would take a very, at least a very large amount of goodwill. Um, and I don't think it's a, very, it's a very helpful way of reading what actually happened and the, the incredible cynicism of those um, negotiations when Aristide was basically forced to make concession after concession with a gun to his head uh, to, to, um, to renege on almost all the policies that got him elected. So I, I, uh, uh, on the other hand, that the way that the United States goes about this, the kind of influence it uses, is more subtle. You're, you know, and I, I would take your point about this that it's not, it doesn't always take the form of literal extortion. But in, in this in this case, I do think um, it's a pretty hard case to argue against. But I'll, I'll answer maybe the question about 2010, 11, and again, you'll want to come back to that. But uh, why now, and why the earthquake? Well, for one, so there's a ton of money basically that's been gathered, unprecedented amounts of investment, you know, billions of dollars. If promise. Now we'll see how much of it. But a large amount has already been started to, been, to be dispersed, but the lion's share is still waiting. And there are a lot of people poised to make a huge amount of money on this. Mainly the big magnates that run the Haitian economy, uh, the Boulosses and the Bijos and the Apeids and so on, who have the logistics, they have the contacts, they have the infrastructure, they have the connections to make, you know, to get the job done, quote-unquote. They're the people who have the power and they're, they're in place and they have connections with international companies. So with with the same kind of companies that made a killing out of the New Orleans disaster, so DRC, Ashbridge, these kinds of companies. 
And what they want is a situation in which no one gets in the way, in which they can have a nicely privatized reconstruction process, where there's no government that has a mandate and the power to nationalize the reconstruction, to, to reorient some of that money into something that would be more obviously an investment in public services for Haitian people. So that's a big reason, if you ask me. It's a cynical interpretation, but I think there's pretty good reason for thinking it. Um, and if you look at the whole, the way the process has been manipulated ever since the earthquake to keep control in the hands of basically Washington, uh, you know, people who are oriented much more to Washington than to Port-au-Prince, technocrats who are largely coming from the World Bank or from the international community one way or another. Uh, and and what, what is the broader agenda? What would Hillary Clinton say? Well, you could, you know, she went down to Haiti at the height of the crisis in Egypt. She took a day off. She, fielded, she did some interviews in the mornings on the 31st of January. So what is that? A few days before uh, Mubarak is gone. Finds time in her busy schedule to get on a plane, go down to Haiti, and talk to people there about how they must do what the OAS is telling them to do. In other words, to reject the actual results of the election and put these two Duvalierist candidates in. And, uh, and again, it's partly because of the earthquake. It's partly to secure the legacy of Preval, unfortunately. Preval is the last of a series of um, concessions that basically secure the neoliberal agenda, cons sorry, consolidate the neoliberal agenda, to consolidate the privatization, basically. So he, Preval, did, I'll just mention two things, and then I'll shut up. He, he completed the privatization process, in particular of the phone company, the most valuable thing the Haitian state had. These, these public utilities, you know, in, originally in cement and flour, the ports, the phones, and so on, other things, too, brought in some money that the Haitian state actually had control over, which meant that it was a source of revenue that wasn't dependent on the goodwill of the donors who have, who have a ton of power. So you, you only have total control over a country, of course, when they are utterly dependent on you for, your, for their revenue. So that Preval uh, did that, and it's been a very destructive process, I think, plus all the neoliberal pressure on the state, the usual thing, downsizing it, and so on. The second thing that Preval did in the summer of 2009 uh, where am I getting the dates wrong? No, 2000, um, yeah, 2009 was to, to veto a move to increase the minimum wage. And there had been a, a very concerted campaign over that summer to, to increase the minimum wage, double it roughly a little bit more, to $5 a day for people working in the sweatshops. Uh, and that's a sector that's important economically uh, for Haiti. It's not huge, but we're talking 30,000, 40,000 people, something like that. And that wage uh, um, uh, would have, that would have, that would have meant that people could just about live. As it stands now, wages are about a fifth, 20% of what they were in 1980, when they were already abysmally low. But the pressure, the neoliberal project, you know, people talk about this as a cliche, you know, we, know, we think we know what it means. What it's meant in Haiti is it's driven wages down that much, while the cost of living has gone up a huge amount. I mean, everything, gets, everything you need, a lot of things, uh, in the case, are imported, very expensive. Uh, and so there was a, and Preval was the guy who vetoed that doubling of the minimum wage. It was passed unanimously, virtually by parliament, and he increased it only to $3 a day. That means that if you're making t-shirts or whatever, companies like Gildan and, or Jeans or U.S. You know, uh, hospital uniforms in Haiti, uh, it costs peanuts. You know, it's cheaper than China. You could, and the profit ratios for the big factories there are you know, 20 to 25 percent. It's a very comfortable profit level. And that's a very big deal. The, the, a huge part of the reconstruction project is basically to invest, you know, funnel investment into this, into Haiti's big comparative advantage, which is it's destitute. And people are, work, are basically willing and forced to work for peanuts. And as long as they can secure that, then that's a big thing. So why Haiti? Well, because Haiti, the U.S. has a big interest in maintaining that, low, that, that kind of floor of the wage economy, not just in Haiti, but all through the sector. It means it's about a third of what it is in... Dominican Republic next door. 
and it's significantly lower than it would be in Mexico. And, and so it means that you can manipulate the entire hemispheric labor policy, basically, by having this useful place where the wages are off the chart. And I think that's an important thing. Uh, and there are other issues, uh, too, that... But the, you next. Um, it's uh, Mr. Supra. Supra. Supra, yeah. Um, uh, Alvin Adams, who I, is that who you're saying was a big supporter of, of uh, Aristide? Well, you'll recall the exchange between him and Aristide when he said, Après danse la tamboulou. And Aristide responded to him, many hands. After the dance, the drum is very heavy, Alvin Adams said to Aristide, which was, I think, a warning, saying, listen, okay, you can have all the celebration and so forth, but, you know, we got serious work to do. And Aristide's response, I mean, this is how the Haitian people read it. And I think the entire democracy enhancement project that happened afterwards to enhance democracy when you had 67% when they stopped the counting, uh, because it could have been much more, but it was 67% of the vote uh, going to Aristide. I mean, this was a pretty overwhelming democratic mandate. Um, but and this isn't even to go into the various CIA elements that uh, Peter was referring to, uh, Emmanuel Constant, Total Constant, who was at that time working with uh, elements of the embassy, etc. Um, but afterwards, I mean, granted, James Baker at the OAS, uh, right after the coup, he said, we're going to treat this regime as a pariah, we're going to isolate them, we're going to fight them. But Within days, Marlon Fitzwater at the uh, press conference said, well, we have to really think about Aristide. Seems he was using mob rule. Seems he wasn't really all he's cracked up to be. I mean, it was, it was very clear a distancing, and it was the beginning of the strangulation of, of um, that regime. The only way they would bring him back was uh, essentially in a cage as a prisoner. And uh, we know that when he did get back, things turned sour very quickly because he didn't put in place the plan, as you were referring to, that was agreed to, uh, at least in his mind, and uh, in the sense we could say in the Haitian people's mind. Um, definitely the uh, uh, Lavalas movement of 1990 was, uh, in Haitian people's minds, a nationalist movement, anti-imperialist, what they see as U.S. domination of the economy. Okay, uh, we can have our differences on, on what that means, but this was the sense of the Haitian nation at the time, and I would contend even is to this day. Um, there's a number of elements there. there I, I think we had a very full cup, but, but just to go to um, the question of, um, oh, and one other thing I wanted to say about the coup of Which January, one? or the, oh. the attempted coup of 1991. The army had to do something because, as you recall, the palace was 
surrounded by a million people. I mean, the, the, the entire capital of Port-au-Prince poured out into the streets and surrounded the palace when Roger Lafontaine, who was the former head of the Tonton Macoutes, uh, made this coup against uh, Pascal Truyot, a preemptive coup really against Aristide. And um, they had no choice. They, they, they had no choice. Uh, uh, I mean, the, the people were, were ready to, um, well, who knows? I mean, in fact, the same thing happened in, on September 30th, and um, they were gunned down. Um, according to um, uh, what we were told, we sent a delegation in December 1991 after the coup, and we were told by people who were there in the Champ de Mars, the, the square in front of the palace, that, that, um, that close to a thousand, maybe more people were, were mowed down by uh, machine guns that night when they went out and tried to do the same thing that they did in January. But you, I see you shaking your head. I'm not sure. No, no, uh, not to. Debate, debate, I, I was there. You were there in front of the palace? I was right downtown. Mm -hmm. Okay, That did not happen. And in Haiti, we, we have a phenomenon. What did not that, happen? That, let me finish. A phenomenon. We'd go out, and when these things were said to have occurred, we would investigate them, follow them up. A beating is a massacre, and these are so exaggerated. The Red Cross said it came down after the, the coup when uh, thousands were reportedly slaughtered, and they said that this is impossible because there is always, there will be wounded, X number of wounded, maybe five, ten to one of those killed. And these reports coming out of Haiti were just the reverse. They were very much exaggerated for particular reasons. And just one other thing, I mean, the CIA reports, and I'm not going to engage in an ad hominem, ad hominem attack on any individual in the U.S. government, but we know that our intelligence services tend to brag about things that take place and give themselves self-importance, and in many respects, know very little about what's going on on the ground. We have evidence of that today in, in world affairs and in the Middle East, okay? Uh, I just make the point that it's my very strong belief and opinion that Horace D. fell of his own weight, okay? And the fact that the United States did not have to organize a coup, the first coup against Horace D. Some people, elites with money and a few soldiers could accomplish this without the United States government being involved or ever really knowing about it. People are on a payroll of the CIA everywhere all the time. It doesn't mean at all that it's productive or, or that what comes out or what may be said afterward is the case. But I, when you say thousands are killed, we used to go to the hospitals and try to find these bodies when we got these they were not there. They were, these things are exaggerated. You say observers say, observers say a lot of things. And when they would say the boat people would come back, the Haitian boat crisis, and they would be murdered on the docks. We had people on the docks who didn't take place. They would be used by ad advocacy groups to make their case. 
nobody said anybody was killed at the uh, Harlan County, but just to go back, this delegation, I should say, was led by former Attorney General Ramsey Clark. The people who were we were speaking to, and these were independently, they weren't all together, were the chief of staff of Marie-Laurence Lasseg's uh, information department. It was the uh, um, second-in-command in Aristide's security corps in his USGPN. It was the head of the, um, the telephone company union. Uh, there were a number of others. Those three, just to name them, and then I think we interviewed about six or seven, independently confirmed that there was a crowd of many thousands in front of the palace on the night of September 30th, that a convoy of buses led by a red jeep in which rode Michel Francois, Colonel Michel Francois, who was one of the leaders, came in, the crowds welcomed the buses, thinking they were going to do the same as happened in the January coup, and uh, um, come and stop the coup. Instead, they opened the windows of the buses and they fired on the crowd. Now, we went afterwards, because they said that they didn't take the bodies to the hospital where maybe you were counting bodies, but they took them instead to Titanien, to a dumping ground outside of town and buried them directly. We went to Titanien, we found bodies. Some of them with their hands tied, shallow graves. We, we counted what we could, it was still during the coup. Um, and I think, in fact, the uh, report, uh, the uh, Justice and Truth Commission report that was done after the coup, uh, details some of these massacres. But um, I submit to you, one, that a massacre involving many hundreds at least, because uh, that was the realm that we were reported, of people wounded and killed happened in front of the palace on the night of the coup, and during the, uh, the three years of the coup, the, the figure comes according to Amnesty International, who I don't think uh, has an advocacy record in particular, sets at 5,000. And second, I would submit that the leadership of the coup, Raoul Cedras, Michel Francois, and the rest of the Haitian High Command would not carry out the coup if they knew that Washington and the embassy and Alvin Adams and yourself were opposed to it. I don't think they would have done that. I'm sure they would not have done that. Okay. Anyway, I'm, I digress, and I think I'm monopolizing the responsibility. So I'd like to add, I mean, there are so many questions. Uh, I didn't quite understand your question, your point you raised about the, the ideas of French Revolution. Uh, I mean, when it happened, uh, these were clearly a mixture of ideas of intellectuals, such as Jacques Rousseau, Voltaire, that are integrated by the people and absorbed. Uh, but we also know that the, the, the French Revolution was itself aborted, and uh, particularly with, and then, but with Napoleon Bonaparte. At, at, at some point, uh, particularly among the mulattoes who were living in France and studying whatever, they uh, had accepted those ideas for themselves, and some of the French revolutionaries had accepted to apply those ideas to them. Uh, so, as, again, I'm not sure if I understand all of it, but clearly 
as the the Haitian institution evolved, as in other places, people came with ideas that might have been directly connected to the original ideas, but still were inspired about democracy, participation, and entitlement to the resources of the world in which they lived in. So to that extent, this is not dead in any way at all. Uh, although I, I think you mentioned that the left, uh, and also in the struggle of the left, I mean, it's a tremendous struggle, and then. Uh, you were talking about that, about propaganda. I mean, we know uh, how powerful that tool is. And in the struggle with Aristide, for example, my mother believed today that Aristide was eating children somewhere in the, in the, in the White House in Haiti. And we have documents, uh, uh, one of them particularly by a French intellectual, was approached by friends at that point because, uh, I mean, we don't have time to discuss all of it, but some of it is quite interesting because at the beginning, friends actually supported Aristide. Not because I see what I see, but because of competition with the U.S. interests. And this is how I see um, helping I see would be an opportunity for them to compete with a situation where they, they, they're small economically, they're further away, and so on, and use a cultural link with Haiti to do that. And, and at first, actually, Ambassador Dufour was a French ambassador, literally put I in his car when they tried to kill him. Uh, so these are all important. So now, but. To address some of the uh, point raised by, uh, what is your name again, sir? Suprel. Uh I mean, there's a joke, and it's really not. It's pretty pitiful uh, because it's not really a joke in Latin America, particularly that the reason there's no coup in Washington D.C. is that there's no American embassy in Washington D.C. And this is very true. Now, I'm not saying that everything is handled by uh, 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 you know iron fist, but clearly the U.S. has determined priorities. And that influenced what happened. I mean, we saw what happened in um, in, uh, in Honduras. There was the government was elected legal, legally, you know, democratically, and that coup remained. In the fifties, there were individuals like the Somosas who were empowered dictators for forty-five years. The Duvalier was there almost thirty years. The Tujillos were there for 30, 30 years. Strasner in, in Paraguay was there for 45 years, and yet it did not disturb the notion of democracy that the United States had for itself and those people. Those people came and slept in the White House, in Lincoln's bedroom. So that, so, so that in a way, the Cubans and the Aristides are a reaction to such an, an imposition of a system that kept away from power and also humiliated millions of people. From, from participation in the, in, the, in the construction and in the resources and building societies in their own country. So these things did not happen by accident. And the reason why those countries can support each other immediately because they understand they've been there before. Like when a woman who's been abused and slapped by a guy can relate immediately to another woman put in that position. So this is part of the solidarity that's based on the commonality of experience. So clearly, the U.S. has played a role to benefit, I mean, personally, my father, I was, I'm connected to some extent, not maybe to those 14 families, but to the upper class, enough to know that at some point somebody knew personally under Reagan, I mean, we, we could guess some of those things, but in one of, once in a while we get to see, like in those uh, Wikileaks uh, telegrams, we can see the reality that this guy was an ambassador when my father was an ambassador, told my father that under the Reagan administration, businessmen, I make powerful business interests, told Reagan, that they, they should, should support baby dog and they should not change circumstances that benefit them tremendously. Where they could make 25% or more in profit, where they couldn't do that here, and we patriate all the money they were making, which doesn't exist here. And, and that's where the serious point is, and use force when necessary. And that you cannot deny. These things are not by accident. In 1954, as I said before, the Arbenz administration in Guatemala had the temerity 
to challenge and say the most important resource of their society, petroleum, belongs to their people. That they want to negotiate, so there's mutual interest. They were overthrown. Uh, now, maybe you could consider the example of Chile as a different, uh, maybe somewhat different, but clearly a government elected by a majority of its people is overthrown and the, the, the leader of the revolution is assassinated. Now, part of the, the Haitian dynamic is that Aristide himself is on contradiction playing into that game being indecisive. But clearly, the main problem that the Haitian people have with the plan that was being asked, they want a plan where they have a stake. They have something to gain from all that amazing work, rather than just the way it was to say that Haiti becomes, Haiti is the cheapest source of labor in the, in, in, in the area, and if it struggles to improve, it's actually challenged that status. So if, if, I, if I want a little bit more money, then you're not interested in me anymore. So this is the world assigned to Haiti, and therefore uh, uh, be used as a security, uh, 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 a as in French, uh, a pressure upon all the other countries so that if forces there don't behave, then we'll take the stuff to Haiti. But clearly it has to stop. Because when someone is enslaved, one thing they know, no matter what you think, is that they're not happy. And that for them to be happy, something has to change. And that is the, well, that is the fight that's going on. The Haitian people want a system of representation by its own government, and at this point, Aristide was the government representing really modest changes when you look at them. Uh, I mean, some of the changes at some point was to double the salary from one to two dollars a day without you know, any benefits effectively. So, it twice the evidence is overwhelming that any time that the U.S. is faced in a serious way with a challenge to that, reason that, that reality where the profits are being made by their side, they will move in that position either to maintain. I mean, the Jewish is one of the most ugliest system you could imagine. I mean, when I was growing up, I, I saw Haitians who didn't remember the last time they had a meal line up to sell their blood to blood banks to that could be exported, God knows what, under what health conditions to other countries. To me, that is democracy. The right to have a meal every day. The right to speak up your mind without being killed and assassinated. The right to have education and healthcare. And, and you mentioned Cuba and the difference between that and the region, the Asian people, now Cuba is doing it for its own interest. However, Cuba is sharing healthcare with the Asian people with dignity, where these are the marketable commodity. And those things should be resources affordable every single individual in every single country. So part of the dilemma here, it's not just a matter of being nice or not being nice, it's a matter of agreeing on a reality where one side cannot be the constantly the side that wins. And then uh, in the case of Haiti, where they won't say uncle, like Reagan said about Nicaragua, then they're going to be shown what a tough things can get. So to me, it's, it's uh, um, now, again, one thing they've learned is that if you're oppressed to survive, particularly in the case of Haitian, Haitian, as, as I was just said, people have a rather sophisticated understanding of their reality, and even when you oppress them and you put them on their knees, they don't believe the hype. They still know that this is not correct, and they work relentlessly to change it. So therefore, you have adjusted a system where uh, you can have elections. I mean, this is what they're trying to provoke now. Not only these people truly are neo devaluers and they have no solution to the problem of the Haitian masses in terms of distribution of health and resources and participation, real participation, not just in an election, but in decision-making for those people in their own life. A real democracy, participatory democracy. Haitian is that. 
and uh, he has been prevented from getting it. And I think the evidence around the world clearly is that uh, the notion of democracy can be quite malleable if it benefits the economic interests of this country. Uh, yeah, I just wanted to say one thing in response to the state uh, question you raised before. Um, I was in Miami a couple of weeks ago. The former security core of Aristide has been meeting, organizing themselves to, for his possible return. This is indicative of the type of anticipation that there exists and, and, and the will to do that. They've been you know, planning what they would do. But the fact is they, they may not be, it's not a lot of time to pull together people, you know, trains, you know, equipment, etc. Um, so I think the need for a um, uh, complementary core that can, can deal with the type of sophisticated threats that um, Aristide might face if he returned uh, is important. You need people with firepower, uh, good organization, etc. Um, it should also be said that the Haitian people themselves, you know, um, have sometimes played a role in Aristide's security. Um, this happened when you were there, Mr. Sproul, but when Aristide returned from uh, the speech he gave at the United Nations in 1991, a few days before the coup, that was when there was supposed to be a coup. And in fact, the security team knew that the army had an ambush on the road from the airport to the palace. And they didn't know how to address it, how to deal with it. They didn't know what they were up against. So they went through City Soleil, and they got a, a crowd of thousands to surround the, the motorcade, and that's how they went to the palace. And uh, in fact, they, they did have an engagement on the, on, on the route, right near Hasco. And um, nobody was killed but there was an exchange of gunfire on, on the way. So, in some ways, there can be and should be a Haitian security corps or ring around Aristide, but he'll need more if he returns. So that's that album. Can I add one word? Yeah. I just want to add one word to your question about the legacy of the revolution and then the contemporary left and so on. It's a great question, I think. Um, and part of it, I'll go ahead just slightly indirectly. Carl Schmitt, you know, the fascist legal philosopher, he wrote a, he wrote a book on the theory of the partisan, where he looks he looks at different um, traditions of locally based guerrilla warfare and so on. He looks at the Spanish civil the Spanish resistance to Napoleon. He looks at um, uh, at, at Mao, for example, and he he's quite impressed by the Maoist uh, war machine. You know, for good reason. It was an extraordinary logistical um, uh, and military you know, achievement. Um, but he says, ultimately, the Maoists are not as threatening to us, in other words, the fascists, basically, uh, as the Leninists, the Bolshevik tradition, because the Maoists are rooted in their place. It's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a basically a peasant land-oriented land um, military machine, and it's grounded in the place. 
Where he says the Bolsheviks are a bigger problem because it's a principle that is a universal principle, basically, a principle of, of popular empowerment or radical, um, radical democracy properly understood or communism or however you want to describe it, that is, doesn't have a boundary to it. It's open and it's exportable and it's contagious and all of these things. And Haiti uh, and the French Revolution, too, are the paradigm of that, I think. The Haitian Revolution was not the Haitian Revolution. It was the revolution in a particular place of, uh, against slavery that happened to be done by these particular group of slaves. But it happened, there were simultaneously uprisings that were temporarily successful in Martinique and Guadeloupe. There, you know, there was, a, there was a, an attempt to attack slavery in different places. And that model, that example, which is crucial, again, for Bolivar, but, but also people like... Um, the abolitionists in the U.S. will refer back to Haiti, as will then uh, pan-African liberation movements of different kinds. And it's, a, it's like a beacon of a, the universal struggle against this form of oppression. Likewise, the French Revolution was not the French Revolution. It was a revolution for universal rights in this particular place, which even to call it was France, okay, but that's a bit anachronistic. I mean, people in Brittany and Languedoc didn't speak the same language. You know, it became... People like Thomas Paine are caught up with it. It's a... It's a it's a universal revolutionary movement that begins here and that when it runs into resistance is increasingly localized there. Okay. And likewise, the Russian Revolution is not really a Russian revolution. Lenin, particularly emphatic about this, is an interna- he thought of it always, Trotsky also, as the local installment of what had to be a global revolution. In fact, if it was, if it was to succeed, Lenin said, you know, it must become that. And he was very confident it would. Um, you know, at, by the end of his life, in, you know, 23, 24, it starts to look less... Um, less hopeful, but certainly through to 2223, the, the assumption is that things will, the real revolution in a sense will start in Germany and it will go from there. And that's, I think, the crucial thing, is a theory of grounded, situated, militant universalism is what I take to be crucial in the Haitian, the Haitian contribution to this legacy. It's not just in Haiti, but it's a particularly, in a way, a particularly extraordinary example of it. And that, the, and that I mention this because in the contemporary left theory, let's say, uh, I, I think that this is an, an interesting polarizing argument about whether that tradition remains alive or whether... So, for example, the philosopher uh, that I've done some work on, Alain Badiou, this is basically the core of his theory, is, is that, an account of such situated universalisms, basically. But, of course, other, there are other people in, in sort of uh, avant-garde political or, or, or critical theory of different kinds who take a very different view, who refuse that, who, want to, who basically emphasize plurality, difference, disruption, lo- you know, or are skeptical in any case of any big you know, universalizing claim. And I, I think that's an interesting argument, and it's far from resolved. I think it's going to remain a very crucial one and probably will do for a very long time. So I, I think it's a, yeah, it's a good question and something that people should, cons- you know, should push and pursue and talk about. Extremely legitimate either people 
question with the number of votes that he got. My question, I guess, is who would you consider the legitimate candidate considering that Aristide is out of I feel that the whole process was flawed from beginning to end. Um, that um, the fact that the Lavalas family party, for one, uh, was, uh, there were 13 others, wa was excluded on uh, completely uh, arbitrary grounds. I mean, it was, it was a silly uh, exclusion uh, when you had Aristide himself pleading on the radio for, uh, for them to be in, and yet they were excluded. So from the get-go, it was, it was uh, not good. Um, the, the point is, when you have something that's such a mess, it's very hard to really know. Um, one thing uh, we do know was that the Lavalas family is extremely popular and probably the most popular party. And so their removal was a little bit, as a number of uh, analysts have said, a little bit like excluding the Republican and Democratic Party from an election here. Uh, the question of Jude Celestin, and this is if you go to the, um, the CEPRs.org uh, site, you can read their, their uh, deconstruction of the OAS report. Was, was very arbitrary. They took certain areas and threw out the votes uh, from certain urban areas where Jude Celestin had some uh, grounding. Uh, I was also in Haiti in November, and you saw those huge Celestin machine char uh, posters everywhere. Now the country's apparently blanketed in uh, Martelise posters. Um, so, this is going to have an effect, and indeed, a lot of the Lavalas uh, second-tier leaders had been uh, integrated into UNITE, the government's party, and uh, some of them had base, Jean Joel in, in Port-au-Prince, Mon Premier in uh, Cité Soleil, um, uh, 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 Moise up in the north. So you did have a number of uh, you know, former uh, Naum Marcellus in the north as well. So you did have a number of these uh, uh, fairly influential uh, secondary leaders who brought a lot of people with them. They were Lavalas, basically. Yeah, they were Lavalas, basically. And, and they even thought of themselves as Lavalas who were, for the time being, on loan to Unité. I mean, they would often make uh, sort of rationalizations along that those lines, even though a number of the Lavalas base didn't. I agree with that, and uh, so I don't think it's necessarily um, wrong that the kept uh, or, or that the that the keps um, this, their their uh, uh, calculation that he came in uh, second just before Martelly. I don't say it's it's not correct. I mean, that they, they admitted themselves that only 23%. I mean, they, they basically admitted how anemic the whole election was. So, um, uh, but, you know, one thing is for sure, that the OAS solution, the one that has been rammed down the people's throat, was not 
justified and not constitutional, and it's essentially illegal. And, uh, you know, to me, that's the principle. That is, Haiti, uh, there's nothing more sovereign than an election. And for the OAS to come in and dictate that Haiti has to do this to overrule, in essence, the Electoral Council, which has not agreed to go along with it. Only four members have signed off on this. The other four have not. You need five to, to make it legal. Um, so uh, basically, they need to redo an election. Okay. Um, okay, just to reinforce the point, it's very important now to say what a huge achievement for the, for the elite, let's say, uh, this election was. Because if you look at the previous four elections, you know, uh, what's striking about it is very high levels of participation and a very clear, unequivocal result. You know, Arasid elected the first time in 1990, 67% of the vote, next closest, 14. Uh, his first prime minister, René Preval, elected in 1995, late 95, with 80 plus percent of the vote. Arasid comes back and he's elected with an even larger number, but because no one really stood against him, that's not representative. More important is that the legislative elections, his party gets about 75% of the vote. And then, uh, and, you know, next closest, you know, you know, a tenth of that. Uh, and then in 2006, Preval, still associated, you know, more distant now, but still associated with Aristide, widely thought of as the Marassa d'Aristide, you know, the twin brother of Aristide, uh, is again elected with not that kind of majority, but still a large majority, you know, about what, five times or four times more than the next closest candidate. So remarkable consistency, very clear results. And that's a threat. That is, that is precisely the democratic threat, that you have a relatively organized, clear uh, mobilization of people going more or less in the same direction, or trying to at least. And you compare that with November 2010, you know, where tiny, you know, about a third of the people that usually vote, vote. Uh, the result is very, very unclear. It's scattered across a bunch of different candidates. The Lavalas people aren't there. Or the, those who are there are acting in their own name, with no organization, with no unity or discipline. So a bunch of previous Lavalas people stand recklessly, you know, as you know, get tiny numbers. And, uh, and you have a mess, you know, you have, and this is perfect for the, this is, this is a guarantee that you will have a government with no legitimacy, basically no power, no real popular power base, and who can't then interfere or get in the way of things. And, and, and so that's why this, November, this election coming up in March is in the sense the last chance before, you know, for five years why all this money is going to be dispersed for the election for people to recover. For Sorry, for the earthquake, earthquake election, yeah. Funny slip. Um, you know, to, get, to regain some kind of grip on this process. And that's why there's really a lot at stake, I, I think. Yeah, I, I like to look at it a little bit broader, maybe. I mean, if you look at, for example, Alicide was overthrown the first time and he's brought back. And uh, uh, the U.S. spent about a billion dollars in Haiti. Now, most of that money doesn't even leave this country. Some of it is allocated to buy cars, uh, uh, different structures are set up. Uh, people were for NGOs, who I understand, are working in the difficult circumstances. Some of them making $100,000 a year when I see the president of Haiti was making $60,000 a year. So all that is going on. There's a tremendous amount of waste so that there's no serious attempt. Because to do that, you know, if you want to take care of a wound, you have to expose it. You have to go to see what the problem is first and address it. Then you can start fixing it. So in Haiti, the problem is a problem of, of, of not just security, of injustice and inequality and denial of rights to the majority of the population. So if to make a profit, 
is com incompatible with that notion, then you don't want it. You don't want democracy. If democracy means most of Haitians having a stake and an interest in benefiting the system and that constitutes profit, then you do not want that democracy. Then it's a big game. There's a ballet about how to do this. So for me, the first problem I have, after 30 years of dictatorship and maybe 200 years of exploitation, the Asian people finally burst on the surface and want to make, play a role in its own destiny. And that modest expression is too high still. And, and we say that doubling salaries and small thing like that for the upper class to pay taxes. And, and, and democracy is not just you imposing on me what is your notion of two parties that we have here. It's a people's majority to decide what dynamic way it is for them to resolve the problem in imaginative ways to, 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 to lead themselves and choose the leadership. That is what democracy is. And to make their own mistakes. Without being, for example, the United States was attacked, uh, was fighting England. We first have the right to come in 18, whatever, 15, and say that you know, this is disorder, we put an end to that. That's nonsense. So for me, I look at it even further. First, there's a UN group. Haiti is under occupation. So I question any election that happens under occupation by a group that causes a stabilization organization. You stabilize things that are positive. You don't stabilize that kind of incredible inhumanity. So the Haitian people are trying to find ways and create institutions to, 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 to change reality. There's a coup, they slice what's not acceptable, they, re, they give you, they hand you some truncated system, and they say, here, you have an election on that. Conceptually, the CP itself, which is a provisional electoral council, should have organization that from the masses themselves, from popular organization, from workers, that would itself have set up the rules. So those people, including the Lavalas, are excluded from the very group that will make the decision. And then when the, that group is set up, it keeps up 14 other groups, including the Lavalas. So to me, all that is, is really... Uh, uh, so I do not see how elections, they're not met. To, to, to solve the real problems of Haiti. They meant to put the band-aids, to get the show on the road, and let's get business going as usual. And if you can pacify people, make you believe you participate in that stuff, and maybe there's something for you at the end of that rainbow, well, you're going to wait a long time. But I guarantee you that at the end of that rainbow, there's no pot of gold. And the Asian people will find out about that. They already know it. They will find out about that one way or another. And that struggle has just begun, I assure you. Thank you very much. I think maybe we can uh, continue the discussion outside the doors. We have uh, drinks and, uh, and some refreshments. And uh, so let's uh, thank our, our speakers and thank you for your questions and your, and your discussion and your points. Uh, and uh, let's, let's continue the discussion uh, right, here, right outside the doors. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.